The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, you are listening to The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm Ashley Whitaker, and joining me for the next hour is our tight team of Cambridge Arts Picture House geniuses, Lorcan O'Neill. Hello. And Henry Jordan. Hello. We are attempting a very packed show today. A couple of reviews might be a minute long if we rant too much on one or the other. We have probably this week's biggest film, Don't Worry Darling. That's Olivia Wilde's directorial 1950s kind of Stepford wife thing featuring lots of drama around her boyfriend Harry Styles and let's see if it holds up to the hype. Then we have the Marilyn Monroe film. It is not a biopic, Blonde. My Best Friend's Exorcism, brilliant tween Halloween-y thing from Amazon Prime. Henry is going solo on Athena because Lorca and I don't know anything about that one. And Hocus Pocus 2 is back, maybe to trash our 1990s dreams. Moonage Daydream for your um, David Bowie fans there. And we're going to finish on the Cambridge Arts Picture House biggest film recently, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. But first, let's wander into a 1950s daydream. Always. You and me. Darling, all of you wives. With you all the time. We men, we ask a lot. Can't you see? We ask for strength. <laughs> food at home, a house clean. With you all the time. And discretion above all else. Boys and their toys. At least we know they're getting work done. Welcome to the Victory Project. We're all here because we believe in the mission. What are we doing? Changing, Changing the, world. the world. What are we doing? Changing, Changing the, the world. world. That's right. So, Lorcan, we're changing the world in a utopian experimental community. We're not quite sure what's going on here. It's a hard one to review without spoilers. Tell us briefly a little more what it's about. So, we yeah, we follow Florence Pugh, um, and she's going about her idyllic 50s housewife life. She has her girlfriends, and then uh, who are all the, the neighbors that live on the cul-de-sac, and then all the husbands uh, in synchronous fashion go to work in mysterious mountain base. Um, there's earthquakes. Um, there's weird goings on in the houses while the men are away. So, like you said, you're immediately you know something's not quite right. This is a very, 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 very familiar story. Um, ever since the '60s and the Twilight Zone, when Rod Sterling kind of came up with the yeah, the whole shtick of maybe idyllic life isn't what you think it is, and then you've got the Stepford Wives in the '70s doing like second wave feminism, and then you've got um, David Lynch coming in and doing his own take, creating a whole genre basically around that that concept of idyllic life not being what it is. So you're just the whole film you're just waiting for, okay so what's the twist or what's the reveal what's what's going to happen uh so in the build up everyone's everyone except Harry Styles is kind of fine everyone's saying Florence Pugh carries the movie because she does she's amazing she's wonderful you can't take your eyes off her Olivia Wilde's distracting you don't really know what Chris Pine's doing and then you've got Mr. Styles who's doing his own thing I won't even get into it because I, I don't even know how to best. is he? Uh, I, ho I hope he is because well He's getting paid for it, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, like Henry, how did how did you? Well, well uh, without going into the twist like straight away, how did you find everything before the twist? Well, this was the thing: is that I was kind of 
very, very torn on the film for, you know, most of its runtime. There was stuff I liked about it and stuff I didn't. I am a Florence Pugh obsessive. I'm, you know, I've seen pretty much everything she's done at this point, and she's never done me wrong before. She hasn't done me wrong here, and you're right, she carries the movie. I really like what Chris Pine was doing. There's this, like, dinner scene kind of in the later half of the film where it's just the two of them acting at each other. Mm. And to have the two best actors in the film just get to kind of flex at each other is a real joy. Um, I also thought the score was actually really great. There's this kind of, I don't know, it, it feels like haunted in a way, and that's kind of what you need. But you're right, when you have this like virtually perfect world, there's this feeling of like, all right, where's the kick? And when the kick came, I audibly muttered, oh no, in the cinema. <laughs> it really completely lost its way for me at that point. How long do we have to wait for that payoff? So far too long. The problem is, is you have about five minutes at the start where Florence Pugh's character's Alice is like, yep, everything is fine. And then suddenly, everything's not quite right. And you stay at the mark of everything's not quite right for about an hour and a half. <gasps> and that starts to get a little bit punishing. Mm. And you're going, all right, come on, just get on with the twist, get on with the twist. I don't want to see her, you know, hanging out with Bunny, just kind of like you know, doing her thing, being gal pals together, just get on. And then the twist comes and you go, no, go back. I don't I don't want the twist anymore. I want to go back to before. I right. wish you hadn't told me what had happened because it's so much stupider than I'd expected. So all of that sounds fine, though, if you don't know when you go into this that you're waiting on a twist. Surely it's scary and spooky enough and you can just live in that world, but is it quite obvious that you're waiting for a payoff and this isn't the real film, as it were, until we get there? I mean, that's a, it's a good question. Like, do, do the filmmakers, does Olivia Wilde, the director, think she's tricking us into thinking that this is just the 1950s? But... We've seen this story so many times. She can't. Signs, act. not signs. The other terrible one. <laughs> the village. <laughs> the village. Yeah, uh, I mean, this this borrows massively from Stepford Wise as well. So I I can't believe that they when they were writing the script and then when they were making this like, oh, people are going to be so shocked that this isn't it, what what everything looks like isn't actually what it seems. It's like, well, no, we we know this is just a twist fest, and okay. yeah, I agree with Henry. The twist is ground-shakingly awful to the point where it, it obliterates oh, no. any good faith, any any artistic merit, any anything the film was... The film does the Stepford Wives thing of building up, like, Florence Pugh, going through the motions of Florence Pugh's in this situation. She's friends with these people. This this thing happens that's weird. This thing happens kind of weird. Um, but Which would be fine, but none of that stuff builds into the twist at all. Every single, like, there's all these earthquakes that keep happening in the town. They're like, oh, the boys are busy downstairs, like, in the mountain. Never Nothing. gets explained. Nope. No, like, there's so many things like that where it's just, like, you, it's trying to make you guess, guess, guess. And then the twist happens, like, oh, it was all oblivious, like, pointless nothing. There's no reason for any of that. It's, it's all just trying to trick you into thinking that something more clever is going on than it actually is. What happened to director Olivia Wilde, then? Because her debut was book smart. And that was the new Mean Girls for the next generation. It was so brilliantly written, so sharp, excellently cast, funny throughout, even though I'm 15 years too old to appreciate it. I loved Booksmart. Where's she gone? What's she trying to do? I mean, yeah, I'm on the same boat, Ash. Like, Booksmart for me is one of my favourite films of that year. I, you know, still go back to it and still just have, you know, a heart full of joy whenever I even think about it. I think part of the issue was just that, you know, Booksmart was a really great comedy that kind of nailed the like emotional undertones of it whereas this is a psychological thriller 
And I don't know if it's that Olivia Wilde as a director doesn't have that in her. I think maybe somewhere along the line she does. But this is a very ambitious step up for a second film. And I do think as well that the screenplay has kind of kneecapped her a little bit. Um, her co-writer from Booksmart, Katie Silverman, has come on and kind of tweaked a script that was already existing. It was on the blacklist and written by uh, Kerry Van Dyke and Shane Van Dyke. And so I think they've been trying to kind of work with something that was just fundamentally flawed. Um, you know, she's. I, I hope that this doesn't kneecap her career and that she can still go on and, you know, try her hand at something else because it might be that there is another genre that isn't comedy that she can also really nail. But I just don't think this attempt at a kind of, you know, psychological thriller has really paid off for her. And she suffered a lot with the press takedown and the drama surrounding it as well. A lot of women directors often do. It's languishing at 6.3 out of 10 on IMDb, which 7 is an acceptable film, I think, on IMDb. 7 out of 10. So she's struggling with this one. But Don't Worry Darling is still showing at all Cambridge cinemas, I'd imagine, and it's rated 15. We are now skipping over into what is not a biopic. Don't go in there hoping for a biopic. You'll be freaked out and disappointed. This is Blonde. Miss Monroe, it's time. you get your start? Maybe. What start? In movies. Why continental? But diamonds are a girl's best friend. I guess I was discovered. Men grow as girls. I know you're supposed to get used to it. And we all lose our charm in the end. I've played Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe. Blonde is a sensationalised fantasy version of the life of Marilyn Monroe, directed by Andrew Dominic, who's brought us very unsettling films before, including Chopper, Killing Them Softly and the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which has a lot of parallels to Blonde, actually, I think. This is also suffering ratings-wise, doing even worse than Don't Worry Darling, were that possible, 5.7 out of 10. My feeling is the reason that it's suffering. It's a certificate 18. This is not a biopic of the movie star Marilyn Monroe. This is a horror film using the character of Marilyn Monroe to explain the abuse and the horrors women faced in the film industry back then. Henry, do you think that it stands up as a horror film? Do you even agree that it's a horror film? I definitely think it kind of, if not is a horror film, it has that horror element to it. Um, Weirdly, one of the kind of things that it was most reminding me of as it uh, started was uh, Mulholland Drive, because the Nick Cave Warren Ellis score is particularly evocative of like Angelo Badalamenti. Spectacular music. It's a really great score, but the problem is, is that when you start to get those gears turning and you're thinking, oh, this is kind of Mulholland Drive, and the like fictionalized biopic thing is making you think of the social network, and you're going, oh, okay, yeah, that's good, and then you start thinking about films that you like more and films that 
know what they're doing and films that are very effective in their execution. And I think the problem with Blonde is that it's quite uneven. Again, a bit like Don't Worry Darling. There is a lot of stuff to really enjoy about it. And I think that horror spin is one of those things that has really thrown a lot of people off. It's one of the things that helps differentiate this movie because I don't think we need another straight-up Marilyn Monroe biopic. You know, she is someone who has been dissected to death and really doesn't need another go over but I don't think that you know taking this fictionalized take on her was the way to do it I think you could have this be about a completely fictional actress and it would still have the same effect the kind of Marilyn Monroe name almost feels like a a way of marketing itself I agree. It's pretty distracting, actually. No, good point. It's. I loved the story. I loved what it was trying to say. It's so shocking in places, and you just get shock after shock after shock when this young actress is trying to make her way and facing abuse from all angles, from birth to her death. It could have been carried as a different story, Lorcan, couldn't it? You aren't a big fan of Anna de Armas, who's in the role of Norma Jean Oh, they are a huge fan of Anna de Armas. Not in this. Just not this. in this role. <laughs> I think... It's there are times in which she's recreating film scenes and you could very lightly squint and you don't know if it's the original. I think she's that good. What doesn't land for you in this film with her? Well, she she looks the part. Like she she's got the mannerisms down. She's a gorgeous woman. Um but it's it, it just felt like she was doing an impression in the mirror just like this was her practice run. It's just the Monroe I mean, character the, is too big, though. You, you're always going to be able The way her. Monroe's characterized in this is like, it's just she's always at 10. She's just like, she's worried. First of all, I don't think, I think Adrian Brody's the only one that saves this movie in terms of performance. He's the only one who I got engaged with. But it's it's more the Marilyn character as written because she's he worried plays that her she's. second husband, Adrian yes, Brody. Arthur, yeah, Arthur, Arthur Miller, Miller. Yeah. And so she's, she's worried she's going to inherit some kind of psychological problem from her mother. Uh, and and that's that's all she is from from scene one. It's just her, just kind of staring wild, doe-eyed, acting erratic. There's no. It's not like she starts one place, then she it builds up and builds up, and then she you see the downfall. She's pretty much there at the downfall at the start. And the film, I I just never knew where I was in her career throughout the movie. She's like we're, she's pretty much famous from the start, but then everyone's acting like she's not. And then I think the. It's it, I, I haven't really stopped thinking about it because I I'm sure there is plenty of things that Andrew Dominic's trying to say with this film. Like, are the are the performances bad on purpose? Is he being deliberately obtuse in his like completely lack of substance visuals? But then some of the visuals are fantastic. You see Norma Jean's mother naked during this fire scene, closing the door, very evocative. Um, there's a f- absolutely terrifying moment with a, a baby in the telephone. Um, and so you just have these like the moments that just shock you out of the movie. You're like, oh, this is amazing. And then the rest of the movie keeps coming at you. And I'm like, oh, God, right. this is so tedious. I get what, yeah, I do get what you mean. And they have underplayed her career here. It's a victim story. You're kind of lurching from crisis to crisis. And like, oh, and by the way, she was making gentlemen prefer bronze at this time. Oh, and by the way, here's this other huge career moment. And they're kind of left to the side. Henry, do you think it is to shock value we do just lurch from jesus oh my god oh oh god it's horrendous things happening to her very viscerally on screen sometimes on the big screen we watch terrible things happen to her does it take you out of it or did you keep a pace with the this is the horror of women in hollywood in that era no i think it kind of 
it's only a bit much because you don't really get a sense of who Marilyn is outside of it. She, as a character, is this just this ball of trauma. You never actually get to see the real woman behind it, or even a fictionalized version of the woman behind it. You just get this, you know, blonde bombshell full of trauma, and that's all that she's reduced to. I think if there was some kind of building up of her the more than that you get kind of little flashes here and there like she's occasionally seen in acting classes and is kind of you know shown to want to be perfecting her craft and pushing it but then inevitably those scenes always end with her having a breakdown or crying or you know going and getting off with someone it just completely plays all the interesting parts of her down and it's why i'm kind of with Lorcan. i don't completely hate this movie i think it's there's a lot that is good about it I couldn't recommend it to anyone because the stuff in it that is so tough is just not worth pushing through if you have any resistance to it at all. Yeah, I think we have a big marketing problem here. Not for the people who made it because they've got a lot of people through the doors, but they've tanked that goodwill within a week because we're all telling each other what it's really like. Mm. I clicked to watch it on Netflix, saw that it was 2 hours 45, parked it till the next day, <laughs> thinking, I don't want three hours. I love Marilyn. I own clothing with her face on. I have a huge Warhol in my adult bedroom. I don't want to claw through three hours of another straight biopic of her because I think I know everything finally sat down, settled into it and was just shocked throughout. But I was completely pulled in by it. Is there anything to be said for people if we can pre-warn them about the kinds of horrors? This is 18 for sexual violence. Is it still worth it if you go into it understanding what it is you're going to get? I think you you have to go in expecting something very abstract. Yeah and meandering to a certain point. For me, like, I had the same problem with Spencer that came out last year with Kristen Stewart, the D- Princess Diana film. Where right. I don't know anything about Princess Diana. I don't really know anything about Marilyn Monroe. And this is a fictionalized account. So straight off the bat, everything I'm seeing, I'm like, well, I have no idea if this that she has a romantic liaison with two other men. Apparently that never happened. So it's Charlie like, Chaplin the Younger. And Edward G. Robinson the Younger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just like, I never knew how to feel because I was like, are they exploiting Marilyn's story to tell a story that they want to tell? Did this really happen? So that's that was a barrier for me. Mm-hmm. But so I kind of just had to appreciate the filmmaking, which there's some phenomenal filmmaking on display here. It just doesn't come together at all for me, really. No. If, Henry, if we do let people know very clearly this is based on a novel by Joyce Carol Oates herself says this is a fairy tale version of what they think Marilyn went through. Will that sell it enough to other people? I think you have to have that clarification in your mind that, yeah, this is a kind of, not just a fictionalised version of Marilyn's life, but a kind of incredibly over-the-top and overplayed one. Because everyone going into this, even if you're like Lorcan and you don't know much about Marilyn, she is such a prominent figure that in everyone's head there is a Marilyn Monroe and you have to kind of know going in that this film is not interested in reconciling your image of Marilyn Monroe with the Marilyn Monroe. It's this destroying is destroying it. It's just interested in destroying image. And that's what I mean. I kind of feel like if, like, Mulholland Drive, you'd kind of instead taken a story about, like, Hollywood tearing actresses apart but played it completely fictionally, not even had those names, it might work better and it might not have all this backlash around it. I just think that because we all have a Marilyn in our head, it's so tough to kind of push through this film. Okay, three very different takes on that. I loved it. It shocked me, but it kept me 
in it until the final heartbreaking, excellent bit of camera work in the final scene. If you're a big Marilyn Monroe fan, I might actually skip it, though, to be fair. That's um, Blonde Certificate 18 still showing. Uh, oh, no, it didn't have... It had a very brief cinema showing. It's on Netflix yeah, now. Um, we're going to change gears because it's October the 1st, spooky season has begun, my friends. Prime Video is catching up with Netflix's tween genre films and they've come out with my best friend's exorcism. I can't believe you're moving this summer. We're always going to be friends. Pick you up in town. It's going to be hot this weekend. Should we do something? So we have a nice, shiny, glossy 2020s teen Halloween-y flick. Uh, teen best friends Abby and Gretchen find one of them is possessed by an otherworldly demon and they need to find a way to get it out. Henry, grown-up male, what are you doing watching Amazon Prime tween Halloween-y flick? How was it? I... You know, I think when you said that, Ash, that all suddenly kind of became clear for me because I, I didn't really enjoy this film, but you're right, I am an adult man. I watched this after I came home from my full-time job and I watched it alone. And I think, actually, that's not really the point of this film. Even before we actually get into it, I think this is the kind of film that people are going to... Like, teenagers should be watching at sleepovers. I think that's, that's what this film is um and i think you know i'm personally not really gonna recommend it outside of that um i i don't know you you kind of were introducing it as a horror film and for me i didn't feel like the horror felt like a bit of an afterthought to me it's, it's a halloween film it's it, there's a vaguely kind of spooky aspect but interestingly the film kind of plays it as if that supernatural aspect is all kind of ambiguous and that until the kind of final 10 minutes or so there's still a possibility that, you know, this best friend hasn't actually been possessed by a devil. There's still, you know, you're still asking, oh, maybe maybe they didn't. Maybe they're just being really horrible to everyone. And then it kind of plays out and you're like, oh, right, and that's the direction we're taking it. But I was actually weirdly, weirdly in with that just version of, like, teenage loneliness that it was showing. Um, Elsie Fisher is the lead and, you know, fantastic in eighth grade. I haven't really seen her much since. I know she was in that Texas Chainsaw earlier in the year. Um, but she carried eighth grade, and that was yeah. a film festival grade film, and she, that was her first big job. I think she's an incredible actress. Exactly, and so when it comes to the parts of this film where she has to just portray like being a really sad, angsty, lonesome teenager, she nails it because she's done it before, and she's you know she's done it again. It's very much within her wheelhouse, and she is really great at that. And I found all the kind of supernatural stuff around that not as interesting. And all the other performances, not that great. Um, Amir Miller, who plays the best friend who needs an exorcism, um, she was in War for the Planet of the Apes, which I didn't realise until I was doing my research afterwards. She was all right in that because she didn't have to say much. And now that she's, you know, grown up a bit and is having to deliver dialogue, it doesn't work as well for me. I found all of her delivery, delivery just stilted. Lorcan, mm. it's a cutesy family-ish friendly made for tv affair directed by a tv director damon yes. thomas 
in your adult male head, mm. <laughs> would this hold up and entertain the audience it's supposed to, or is it all just a little bit silly? Um, weirdly, I think it's too sincere to win people over <laughs> i'm so used to like netflix and prime just these horrible cynical like just right. like sell products to um teenagers this felt uh i liked the characters in this i really liked the relationship between the main two uh actresses um i think for me this was an interesting one to watch because it's based on a book by a guy called grady hendrix who I wrote a book called Paperbacks from Hell, and then he started his own kind of publishing chain, republishing all these old pulp novels from the 60s and 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very much a love letter to not just the 80s, but genre filmmaking. And that, that came across. He, there's no kind of agenda or message. It's just they're trying to make a story about likable protagonists in a situation. And the 80s soundtrack smacks you in the face. It is like, it's yeah. pretty heavy, yeah. Not since Thor, Love and Thunder have I been hit that hard, I don't think. <laughs> but it's, like, like I say, it's it's very sincere. The tone's all over the place. A lot of the humor doesn't work. Um, but that, that central relationship is what you have to hang the movie on. And it's a perfectly fine nail to hang the movie on. I think it's perfectly fine. We don't really need to say anything else. My Best Friend's Exorcism on Amazon Prime. It's showing us rated R, which suggests that it's a 15 for me, which that's got to be a 12A absolute max, surely. I don't know. Definitely 15 because really? it's some of the suggestive, suggestive content. Righty-ho. Mm. Well, it's good enough for a sleepover if you're under 15, but you're not allowed to watch it. So don't do that, kids. <laughs> That's my best friend's exorcism. We're going to squeeze in another before we hit half time. Henry, you are basically leading on this one. Tell us all about it after the trailer. This is Athena. Mon frère est décédé à 0h30 cette nuit. Pour la mémoire d'Idir, les coupables seront traduits en justice. Je vous demanderai de rester calme. Okay, Henry, heavy hitting here. Um, we have a tragic death of a youngest brother, lots of chaos, siblings trying to figure out what happened. Looks like there's some martial law element. What is going on in Athena? Uh, Athena, I mean, I, I was really pushing for us to cover this this week. I'm the only one who's seen it, and I am just desperate to get the word out. So it's a Netflix film, so if you have Netflix, just go and watch it right now. Um, after yeah, the show. After, after the show, please stay tuned. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's this this story. It's kind of familiar if you've uh, seen Len or uh, Ladislis Les Miserables from a couple of years ago, um, who was kind of one of the co-writers on this film as well. Um, it's yeah, this story of kind of like uh, strife and political turmoil in the banlieue. Um, but instead of those films, where those are kind of dramas or they have their like comedy elements in Len's case, this is especially for the first half really played as like an action film. It's a really rip-roaring like adventure with these political, not even undertones, political overtones. If we're being really serious, um, but it's it's the presentation where it really knocks it out of the park. The film is presented largely in this kind of series of long takes, so it's these single shots that can go on for nice. you know as long as eight minutes, and that includes the very first shot. Which, if you need any convincing to watch this film. Watch the first 10 minutes, and if you don't like it after that, fine. But this first 10 minutes, we start at a police station where a conference is going on, a riot breaks out, a group of youths storm the station, steal a safe, steal a van, drive down to the estates where they live, 
and then they turn the estate into their own, you know, classical fort where ready to be sieged by the police. It is incredible stuff. And as someone who, ironically, from other Netflix films, has really been worn down on the concept of the long take, you know, thinking back to The Man from Toronto and the kind of rubbish that that was trying to pull, I am reinvigorated by this technique. Suddenly, I need every film to be shot in long takes. I want every filmmaker capable of it to just really flex and really go for it. And the best bit is, is you kind of forget that these takes are happening. That's why they're so good. It's a director showing off, sure, but never overly so. It's always someone saying, I'm capable of this and this is going to be really, really cool. It eventually settles into a kind of more sombre tome and by the end I was... It's really kind of... I don't know, you really sit with the film by the end. And it is, it's a breezy 97 minutes as well. So if you're watching any Netflix film this week, you could watch this twice in the time you watch Blonde. Um, and yeah, it's really just just so completely worth your time. I cannot emphasize enough that you've, I think it's it's in the top 10 in Netflix at the moment. In about a week it won't be, and it will be buried on the service forever. So please, please, please go check it out. I am sold, Lorcan. Are you sold? Oh, yeah, just looking at the trailer here, it looks incredible, actually. And again, if you hate it, you've only wasted 100 minutes. (laughs) We should have done this homework this week. I feel (laughs) terrible. Thanks to Henry for selling us all on Athena, now on Netflix, only 90 minutes long. Do it, do it, do it. Cambridge 105 Radio. On Cambridge 105 Radio, Gadget Guide gives you a download on the world of tech. Rob Chifferfield and Lawrence Michalift take you through streaming TV services, the latest releases from Apple and Google, and everything you need to get the best out of working from home. Digital assistants are helping us to do more in our homes. Does your light bulb respond to voice commands yet? Cambridge technology company Raspberry Pi have some news. Gadget Guide, Monday at 6, online and on Cambridge 105 Radio. Suffering from buffering? Find yourself screaming, not streaming? Or do you just lag behind? Then it's time to demand better broadband. City Fibre is building a brand new full fibre network across the UK, giving you access to broadband from a range of providers that's more reliable and up to 20 times faster than average. So you can stream, game and video call without interruption. Get connected to full fibre today. Choose your provider at cityfibre.com slash Cambridge 105. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk cklg accountants your partner in business your partner in life cambridge 105 radio if you're alive in the early 1990s and watching the telly you'd remember the sanderson sisters disney plus have brought us right back 29 years later we're back in salem guys I banish thee from Salem <gasps> forever. They were right to fear thee. Magic has a way of uniting. Happy 16th birthday, child. I have a gift for my favorite customers. 
Legend has it, it's on the 16th birthday that a witch gets her powers. Yes, Salem, the original cast in its entirety. Sarah Jessica Parker, Kathy Najimy and Bette Midler are back as the Sanderson sisters. They have been brought back to life by the Black Flame Candle. I just imagine everyone knows this story because I've watched this film <laughs> once a month since it came out in 1993. Um, but yes, it's been remade for Disney+, Plus, remade for the television, I would like to interject right mm. at the beginning, um, by Anne Fletcher, who you might know, she did The Proposal, um, worked on the new hairspray, things like Step up so i think this is their first very big job lorcan mm. we are the core demographic yes. for the original 1993 you would have thought film. wouldn't you yeah we really are you've got a gay and a female <laughs> born in the late 80s <laughs> it's kind of this is our shtick I have been talking to you all about this for months. Yeah. I have been excited for months. I sent you a very, very sad little video where <laughs> I had I decorated my entire house early, ready to get the vibe just right yeah. for my special day that I've been waiting for for 29 years. Yeah. The Hocus Pocus sequel. Yeah. What did you make of it? Well, I didn't, I didn't get hyped up quite as much as you. I had, a, I had a fork ready to jam in my leg whenever I got too upset. Um, yeah, like you say, this... It's very lazy, isn't it? It's not... They looked at who, who's middle-aged or getting there that we want to appeal to. Okay, the bare minimum we have to do is get these three actresses back and yeah. get them to do their shtick, which is lovely and fun. And then they're like, who else do we want to appeal to? It's Disney+, Plus, so we want to appeal to modern teenagers who I guess are big into reaction culture. So the lazy <laughs> middle ground they found was, let's have the witches do shtick and then cutaways to the teenagers reacting. And that is, like I said earlier with my favorite friend, my best friend's exorcism, was not cynical and did not pander to what their idea of a teenager is. This very much does pander to what they think a stereotypical modern brain-dead teenager must be to consume this absolute tripe. It's just the, the perfect... There's a scene that perfectly represents that. Whenever the witches come back through some blah, 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 they light the black flame candle again, the witches come back, and all of a sudden the soundstage just lights up so much color. Those three actresses are so good together. And the writing for those characters, even in this film... It's like those three actresses and characters work together so perfectly that even the, even the hack writers of this movie could write good dialogue for them. And they, they start singing a song, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm so into this. Cut away, as soon as the song starts, to a green screen and two gormless teenagers just watching them. It's like Thinking, being like, oh my, oh my god, who, yeah. what's going? And then it cuts back. The song is still going in the background. You see them and you're like, oh, this is a really fun song. Cut back to the teenagers. Music drops. Can't hear anything. And it's like, that's the movie. It's those two opposites <laughs> failing to work together in every way. Oh, well, you, 
you've hit the nail on the head there. I think they're trying to pander to people our age who are going to sit down and force their kids to watch this because we loved the original. So it is a film of two halves. It's like, oh, five minutes for mum, five minutes for baby. Five more minutes yeah. for mum, five more minutes for baby. To try and keep us both parties going for the hour or so that it's on. Yeah. I also agree that the three, Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, Kathy Najemi, I can't believe they got them all back together. They mm. know how much love there is for mm. this film and for the magic the three of them created. I think Sarah Jessica in particular re-embodied her silly spirit and the character nailed it. Yeah. Bette Midler's in a, she's nearing 80. The energy cannot possibly ever be there. She was a little slower. Kathy Najemi was doing the Kathy Najemi. Um, I don't. I didn't see through the poor writing. I felt so badly for the three of them. I could see them trying to mm. interject their little bits of timing yeah. and a little bit of like banter between the three of them, but. There is no writing because there is no story, no. is there? No, it's just it's a bland rehash of the original, and they're just doing the bare minimum they can to keep your attention. There's a whole subplot with Sam Richardson, who's a very funny. He actor. is a one. I was I lit up when he yeah. came on screen. I was like, oh, we might have saved this here. <laughs> yeah, and his he's got. He runs like the a, shop in he, Salem. He runs like a, the tourist shop in in the town. Yeah, so he's the one that gives him the black flame candle. Uber fan. Uber fan. Um, and he's got what felt like a three-hour-long subplot about where he has to—he's going—he's gone task finding. He has to find little items, and they bring back poor Doug Jones. They literally dig up full Doug Jones. Oh, playing Billy Butcherson. <laughs> mouth with, still sewn shut, young Billy. Yeah, and with well, I, I wish his mouth stayed shut because I don't know what on earth accent he was trying to do. It wasn't New England, that's for sure. <laughs> But you've got these two, like like Sam Richardson and Doug Jones. What that? that could be a movie in and of itself. It and just, could have been. I love the two around. of them together. They had yeah. a great bro body comedy. They did have a, a bit of bro scenes. comedy. Yeah. I loved Tony Hale from Arrested He's, Development. He, he almost saves the movie. He does. He plays the dad. He has landed the tone just right. Perfectly. He knows that the parents watching this know who he is. He knows the kids do not care. Yeah. And he's landing the little cutesy weird dad role just perfectly. I loved him. There are they scattered a few Easter eggs through. Mm. I was expecting more, and I know it's a really cheap way to revive an older film, yeah. but not enough to make me happy. So when the whole town does a dance routine, mm. everyone's wearing a costume from the original costume yes, party. I, I loved that. that. You get the Madonna conical bra. It's I loved that kind of stuff. What I hated was I think they must have gotten a lot of praise in the original for the music numbers which did really organically come into the story in the original. Yes. In this, they aren't just shoehorned in. They are concrete steamrolled right into the middle yeah. of a scene several times, and they're embarrassing. Yeah. Well, the, the, yeah, there's, there's, they recreate the dance hall, like you said, the dance hall costume party, and then that, they're just, they're just like, oh, remember what we did 30 years ago? Let's do that again because it worked really well last time. And all the like, songs we, are too much like, on the nose. Yes. It, well, yeah. And it's not like it's not like the song the song they sing at that moment. It's not like a witchy, spooky song. It's just a pop song. And it's, 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 it's them doing the rendition of it. I will say the film opens. 
I had I had high expectations when the film opened because they cast three little girls who are phenomenal. They were cute enough. They, yeah, they, they did well. They did the mannerisms. They did everything. And then Tony Hale's in the in the flashback as well because it's like ancestors thing. Mm-hmm. He was perfect. And then like the evil evil preachers trying to marry one of them off to one of the local boys and local boys is I don't want to marry her. She's hideous. She's hideous. <laughs> and it's just it's genuinely quite funny and it feels atmospheric and Halloweeny. And then cut to the modern teenagers and I'm like I hate everyone because no one's got a character. It's just we could have spent more time in in original Salem. I agree. Yeah, I mean, even just have that be the movie or anything, or anything like anything but what we got, basically. I think. It's. I had a horrible feeling at the end that they've left it open to make more for Disney Plus. This didn't feel like the big shebang it should have been if they said, right, we've got all these actors back, we are doing this one more time, and that's mm. your lot. Because yeah. they would have put a lot more effort into it. And so jumping in is the guy here who hasn't seen the original Hocus Pocus. He is Pocus, too young. Because I'm a child, apparently. Um, <laughs> Do you think this is going to appeal to someone like me who has not seen the original? Nope. No. Nope. Please don't watch this. <laughs> if you're a fan of please films, don't, don't watch, watch this. <laughs> and honestly, if you've got young kids, please show them the 1993 original. It yeah. is magical. It yeah. It's the reason the season has continued in England outside of the US. We don't care about Halloween over here. It's films like that from the early 90s that we watch every single year. Do not show your children this. Henry beg of you (laughs) no (laughs) at least watch the original first don't let this taint the wonderful memories because that film was perfect the the original's perfect and a a big it's something like a Disney classic going through IPs and just neutering them all Um, the original is so naughty like it's really it's a really naughty it movie is, and that's why I loved not, watching it as a kid it's not dirty it's naughty it's not dirty it's yeah. very naughty and that's yeah. that that got me excited when I was a kid I was just like, like oh yeah I, I got that, that I feel joke. like I shouldn't be watching this like the scene where they they go to the the couple's house and they think the guy's yeah, the devil yeah, I was like yeah. I'm, as a the kid I was like party. I know something's happening here and I can't wait until I'm older to yeah. find out what I it is I can't quite put my finger yes, on it but there was a joke there okay in To sum up, Hocus Pocus 1993 original, a perfect film, Oscar worthy. Hocus Pocus 2 on Disney Plus, we're going to tell everyone to avoid, avoid, avoid. Avoid, yeah. Oh, I'm so disappointed. Mm. However, let's move on to another person I adore. I'm hoping Henry's not going to trash his good name for me. We've got a film all about Bowie. This is Moonish Daydream. Are you there, David? You're aware of a deeper existence. Are you there, David? Are you there, David? Maybe a temporary reassurance that, indeed, there is no beginning, no end. And you find yourself struggling to comprehend a deep mystery. Henry, a bit like people wandering into Blonde might be thinking they're looking at a David Bowie biopic. Brett Morgan has made something quite different. It's an experience, isn't it? It absolutely is. There's, I don't know, I get very passionate about documentaries because I feel like they're a really interesting kind of form that is often really, like, misutilised or just really, like, boringly done. 
Um, you know, there's been like all sorts of documentaries this year. Like there's been a Leonard Cohen one that's exactly what you expect, where it's kind of talking head saying like, yeah, the thing about Leonard was he was the greatest. And then it's footage of people singing hallelujah. And then, you know, plays out over the credits. Everyone cries and goes, wow, I love Leonard Cohen. And I think that's probably what a lot of people are expecting going into Moon Age Daydream. That is completely not what this film is. It is... It's a portrait of the artist as a mosaic, I guess. It's using sound and vision as this tool to show how multifacetous David Bowie is. It's not attempting to say, and this is it, we have captured who he is. It is just a way of saying this is the various ways in which we use David Bowie to kind of reflect and refract our own lives and our own interpretations. And it's, it is very hard to explain. You kind of get a feel of it from the soundscape. It is this mixture of his songs that have been kind of retooled and remixed a little bit by Brett Morgan and his team, um, paired up with visuals from all points of his career. This isn't a kind of uh, typical chronological kind of thing. You will get footage randomly plucked from the start of his career right up until the end, just kind of dropped in when it's important to tell, tell a theme or tell an idea. It's less about telling a story and more about telling the idea of David Bowie, telling, trying to tell people how, how much he how is. How he felt yes, for everyone. Yeah. Does this follow from the very beginning through to the end of his career or is it just a few moments in iconographic, like iconic time? Well, this is it as well. There's not a bit where it's, oh, and, you know, as he was growing up, he did this. There's footage of interviews where he's talking about his youth and there's a little bit at the end that's bringing in footage from Blackstar but it isn't quite no, it's as his final album. Yeah, style, yeah, it's not quite as as cut and dry as that. It is very much about yeah, like you say, pulling moments out of his life and then using visuals for that. There's a whole sequence that's just ashes to ashes, and it plays that entire song in full. Oh, nice. There's bits from the music videos. There's you know plenty of footage from the man who fell to earth. I was watching this and I was just dreaming of a version where there's a Blu-ray of this and you can watch a version of the film that just says, and that's what clip this is from, and that's where this clip is from, and that's where this clip is from. So you can just be that bunny falling down that rabbit hole and just go deeper and deeper and deeper. It is one of those films where I like David Bowie. I've listened to a lot of his stuff. I have favourite albums, but I'd be hard pushed to call myself a Bowie fan. But this makes me really just fall in love with him and his music completely. It it creates David Bowie not as a person, not even as a as an idea, but as a world that's ready to be explored. I really desperately want to go and see it now. It's he's a, he's the only listed actor on IMDb, so it's all just found footage, basically original footage. Does how does that get stitched together to make it into a film with a beginning and a middle of an, and an end? Well, it. This is, again, part of the kind of magic of it. There's not <laughs> there's not really a beginning, middle or end. There's footage that comes back. It's these series of cycles and circles that are looping in back on themselves and, you know, uh, repeating kind of ideas, returning but suddenly meaning something different than what they once met meant. It's, it's about, you know, David Bowie has been many things, but he's also sometimes been the same thing to different people and it's about reinterpreting the same thing through different lenses as well as using different lenses to look at him. It is... It's incredible and it's so difficult to explain to people. You really it's just... You have to go see it and it really is like a properly cinematic experience. Wonderful. So many documentaries, you're like, I'll watch it at home, you know? I'll, I'll skip it, whatever. 
Go see this in a cinema, please, please, please. Is it accessible to people who don't know much about or don't haven't been exposed to a lot of Bowie? I think it is because you know everyone, even if you haven't you know gone out and listened to any of his albums or something, you're going to know songs of his, and those are gonna be the kind of stable posts that are going to guide you through the film. Those songs are always there. And so even You're going to know the visuals as well. Some, some of them, yeah. yeah. And so even as there's visuals that you're unfamiliar with or songs that you're maybe not familiar with, you know there is a sense of familiarity that will keep you grounded even if the film just lifts off into space. Wonderful. So it's still on at the Cambridge Arts Picture House. Yeah, excellent. Definitely go and see it. Is it a 12A or just a It's 12? a 15. Is it a 15? Oh, super annoying. Okay, well, sneak in. Go and have a look. Don't sneak in, I'm kidding. Um, that's Moon Edge Daydream, um, a visual spectacular about David Bowie's work showing at the Cambridge Arts Picture House. We have time to squeeze in your best-selling film from this week. This is Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Mum's away. Mrs. Harris, what would I do without you? Mrs. Harris is the soul of discretion. Mum would never know she'd been but for the polish on my knobs. That's what we are, Vi. The invisible women. Kiss me once, kiss me twice, then kiss me once again. Isn't it divine? 500 pounds. 500 quid for a dress? When I put it on, nothing else matters. My Eddie would love to see me in a Dior gown. War's been over a long time. Your Eddie's never coming back. Nothing wrong with dreaming, Ada. That's what you are. You're a dreamer. Lorcan, Leslie Manville, Mrs. Harris is a dreamer. Mm -hmm. Tell us what the premise is. So, Mrs. Harris is a war widow who works as a cleaner uh, in London. Fairly impoverished, uh, rationing wartime, all that, all that jazz. Um, she gets inspired by one of her clients that she cleans for um, to pursue getting a dress, and she finds one and again in her client's um, kind of closet. That's uh, Christian Dior. Um, so she saves up, has has a bit of luck along the way, and then uh, goes on a big old grand adventure to Gay Paris to find the dress a little naively, kind of goes straight to the the fashion house and tries to buy one direct from uh, uh, a wonderful performance by Isabelle Huppert. Not usually how I... <laughs> not, <laughs> Isabelle Huppert in a way I've not, I've not quite seen it before. Um, it's it's very charming. When I first saw this poster months ago, I was like, Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. That sounds insufferable. Twee. Twee. Um, and it's lovely. It's just a very lovely little movie. I, I, Leslie Manville's wonderful. Jason Isaacs is just it's such a joy to see him. Um, and everyone's Isabel Huppert is just like you love to hate her. Uh, it's a very comfortable film. Um, yeah, it just it's like slipping into a nice nightgown. It's very comfortable. Well, we should caveat your review with the fact that you loved the Downton Abbey film. <laughs> And I don't think I've forgiven you for that yet. That's fine. You, but we all know why I like the Downton Abbey film. The particular club scene. <laughs> the particular club scene, He yeah. lit up. Yeah. <laughs> Henry, is this just a bit too twee for you, or did you find the warmth and the charm in it? Oh, no, no, no. Even I was completely won over. Um, it's funny, when we are talking about My Best Friend's Exorcism earlier, and we kind of framed that as, well, you know, I didn't like it, but it's not for me. Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris is a film that is not aimed at me at all. This is aimed at people, you know, generations older than I am. But it has that universal appeal. It is just so lovely. It's not quite to this high benchmark, but it has that sort of Paddington quality of just right, okay. being paired with someone who 
has such a lust for life and such a kind of a, a, a love for the world that you are really happy to follow her anywhere. And there are moments in the film where it does seem like all is not going it going the right way. And I think the film is actually quite good at like lingering on those moments for just enough. We're like, ah, it hasn't all gone well. And then when that kind of emotional relief comes, it just really hits you and you go like, ah, oh, everything, everything is wonderful, isn't it? It's one of those films that, you know, we get this a lot, but um, it's one of those ones that kind of feels like a proper escapist film where you can just go and sit in a cinema, take a cup of tea maybe, sit there for two hours and just be in bliss. And you're forgetting about anything else that surrounds you. You're just happy to be in Paris with Mrs. Harris. So it sounds like there's no push and no pull really in this. But then how does it keep you in bliss for nearly two hours if you're there's no arc? Oh, it's just niceness. It's it's not it's not Downton Abbey. There is tension. Like Isabel Huppert is who Isabel Huppert is there to be the barrier. Like there are obstacles that she has to overcome. Um and it's generally upsetting whenever she's she's like, Oh, I just want to buy the dress and leave because I've got to catch my plane. I'm only here for a day and they're like, Oh no, no, it takes it takes so long to to get it fitted and then it's she, Dior, darling, it's a tour. <laughs> Dior. And she has to find a place to stay and she has to keep making these tight schedules to get the fitting and then uh the plot for me derailed a little bit when it goes gets into uh, these two young people that she's staying with uh, it's like Mrs. Paris living up to the title Mrs. Harris goes to Paris you expect some kind of contemporary social message from Paris in that time so she gets involved in like workers rights and that kind of thing went off went off the rails a little bit for me because I'm just like oh, can I just see this story about this cute woman um, so there is tension um, and <laughs> too much tension for Lorcan potentially yeah <laughs> <laughs> but well it's obviously your biggest film at the Cambridge Arch Pit Arts Picture House this week. How long do you reckon you'll be running it for? Are you packing it out? Lots of different types of people coming to see it. Yeah, I mean, there, it's 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 definitely appealing to the um, the Grey Pound, but um, it's it's definitely one like we've got um, lots of like younger people, young people, especially women, coming to see it just to see like. Something nice and just uh, romanticize, romanticizing kind of Paris in that era. It's it's got it does have a universal appeal, like Harry says. There's there's no one's gonna watch and get angry by it, but everyone's gonna watch and just feel yeah. kind of nice. Um, so I, I hope as many people come to see as possible, just just to have like a nice break from all that's going on yeah. in the world. And it's set in the 1950s, so that would have been Christian Dior's new look post Second World War. She's got all these layers of taffeta, so yes. it's her kind of second act, isn't it? After she becomes widowed. Mm, yes, exactly. Oh, see, I haven't even seen it, but I can give you a little fashion inspo. And it's got the Merovingian <laughs> from the Matrix. So anyone who's a fan of the Matrix movies, it's it's quite delightful. That to see is back. a reach, Lorcan. Okay. <laughs> Mrs. Harris goes to Paris, certificate PG, unsurprisingly, packing it out of the Cambridge Arts Picture House, still showing in cinemas across the city. Seemingly delightful. Thanks, Henry and Lorcan. What was your pick of the pick of the week, Henry? Uh, go go home, you watch Athena on Netflix. Um, ask, demand your local cinema plays it, even though they probably won't. Just <laughs> get, just rent a cinema, watch Athena. <laughs> <laughs> and Lorcan, what made it for you? Uh, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris is the film that is what it's trying to be and it's perfectly satisfying. Really? I'm very surprised by that. I'm going, I'm going to remind everyone to please not see Hocus Pocus 2 and I cannot <laughs> convey my disappointment heavily enough to you. I was still shocked and enthralled by Blonde, mm. but 
because I just let myself be carried away with it and it was not what I thought it was going to be and I enjoyed the surprise, shall we say. (laughs) (laughs) But join us again in two Saturdays' time. They've got a plethora of riches next yes. time there's like maybe eight or nine films they're choosing between yes and maybe kings. yeah yeah oh yeah multiple kings oh it's a king themed show <laughs> and then maybe come monday this will be available as a podcast so you can listen back to us because you loved us so much <laughs> but thank you so much to henry jordan thank you and thank you so much to Lorcan o'neill my pleasure and we have stardust baby playing us out my very favorite david bowie song goodbye my pretty things Bye. Wake up your sleepy head. Put on some clothes, shake up your bed. Cambridge 105 Radio.